coming week. And we just ask, Father, that you would address our issues, the things of our lives through your word today, that, Father, we would be obedient and that we would be blessed. And so we just lift up our service that you'd be glorified, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you turn and greet your neighbor? Greetings. You need to work on the ending there a little bit. You need to work on the ending a little bit. I know. I went too long. I was supposed to end at like two quarts soon. Good morning. Uh, say, good morning, Pastor Mike. That's better. Pull out your Bibles now and turn them to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We'll be picking up at verse 10. And as always, if you arrived here today without a Bible, shame on you. Um, but there should be one in front of you. All is not lost. There should be one in front of you underneath the seat. If there isn't, raise your hand <laughs> so we can shame you. No, raise your hand and the ushers will bring one to you. Anybody need one? Everybody good? Nobody's going to raise their hand now. Go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. 2 Timothy chapter 3, we'll be starting at verse 10. But you, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all, The Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and apostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of knowing from whom you have learned them. And from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus." All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Lord, I pray that you would thoroughly equip us in this place this morning for the good works that you would have. And so, Lord, as we open up your word, I pray, Father, that you would show us the realities of the trials that we face, the hardships and the persecutions, but also, Father, that we would continue, Lord, in the things that we know that is so necessary for us to continue to push forward in. So we lift up our service, this time in your word this morning, that you would speak to us and guide us, make it real to the various lives that are represented here, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. Now, as I look at verse 10, it says, but you have carefully followed my, and then he went into those, that list that we studied last week. And I'm looking at Timothy, and I think Timothy's got some bad press. Some bad press? Well, we even call him. What do we refer to him as? We refer to him as timid Timothy. Well, Timothy ended up being anything but timid. Tradition tells us that he gave his life for the gospel. He gave his life for the Lord Jesus Christ, based upon what Christ has done for him. And so I look at verse 10, and I'm thinking somewhere along the line, it seems as if Timothy is getting it. You've carefully followed my doctrine. Maybe he's not quite as timid as we have been led to believe. Keep in mind that Timothy's timidness would be relative to Paul's boldness. Paul was off the charts. And so if I would compare myself to Timothy, anybody who was willing to give their life for the gospel, I wonder how I would match up. Next to Timothy, we would probably look lukewarm at the best. Next to the Apostle Paul, probably wonder if we're even saved. Now, Paul did encourage Timothy to stir up his gifting because it had kind of settled down. Not to have a spirit of fear because he could be overwhelmed. Not to be ashamed of the gospel because we can so easily forget the power of the gospel. And he told him to hold fast to the pattern of good words because, well, the words of the world can become bigger than the words of God in our life at times. But the only reason that you tell someone to do these things is because you think maybe they're not doing these things. Or maybe not to the standard that you believe that they should be doing these things. Paul, Paul was a man of motivation. 
He understood the value of the gospel. He said, I'm not ashamed. I understand what it's able to achieve in the lives of those who hear it and submit their lives to it. And because of that, he understood as well, because keep in mind, this is a prison epistle. This is the last epistle, the last letter that we have from the Apostle Paul before his life was taken from him. And so he's understanding the necessity to encourage the church, that the church would continue to move on, push on, or as he says in verse 14, but you must continue in, continue in the things that we have learned. But we did see last week, in the face of apostasy, young Timothy, he is carefully following these things, these examples that were set by the Apostle Paul. Carefully following, he was following or learning with the intent of doing. He had the mindset of receiving from Paul, looking to that person who is more mature than he is. Seeing this person whose God has done this profound work in his life, and we'll see the manner in which Timothy was able to observe these things, or at least experience these things, even firsthand to such a degree that it motivated the man to give of his life for this work of ministry. It's with a desire to follow that Timothy is determined to preach Paul's doctrine, to mimic Paul's morality, to possess Paul's purpose, to be forever faithful to this work of ministry, to suffer long and to love large, and to persevere in all that opposes us in these areas of our walks with the Lord Jesus Christ. As Timothy looked to Paul, he made a determination to godliness. He saw the example and he he embraced the example. He took the example unto his life. And so we're reading about these things time and time again through the Scriptures, and we see the example of those who have gone before us, those who have been willing to give of their lives. And you have to look at, why would the apostles give of their lives? Because they were thoroughly convinced of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They were thoroughly convinced that even as God raised Christ from the dead, He would raise them from the dead. Because of that, they were freely willing to give of their lives. And so Timothy, he looked to Paul and he made a determination to godliness. And I have to ask myself, those who observe my life, those who observe your life, are they able to make that same determination to godliness? Are they able to look at the example that you set in your life and follow that example? And as they follow that example, to be biblically honoring to God. And I'm talking about every aspect of our lives. See, when we disperse, when we disperse after service today, we go off in so many different directions. And God's got reason and planning for every sermon that's ever been given based upon His Word, given from a pulpit. It's that that sermon would be multiplied many times over within a society so that this would have an effect for godliness and righteousness in that society. It's righteousness repeated. And so we would go out there, we would preach that word, but we would also live that word so that the darkness in the society would see the light of the gospel of God and it would shine upon their light. This has to be real. The the word that we study, it has to be real. It has to be applicable, but also as it is applicable, we also have to see that it's doable, but as it's doable, we also have to see that the change that it makes, and again, has to be first in your life, but then in the lives of those around you. If not, we're just reading stories and fantasies. And so, is this truth? If this is truth, it should leave an indelible mark upon our souls, upon the psyche, upon the nature of who we are. And so this is what Paul previously talked about when he spoke of righteousness repeated in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. He says, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And again, this is that progression of faith to faith to faith, the just living by faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he, he told imitate me as I imitate Christ. And that tells me that Paul was not a perfect man. There was times he got in the flesh. There were times that he failed and he faltered. But he says, as much as I imitate Christ, imitate me in these things. And what is he talking about? He's really saying imitate Christ in how he works in the life of an individual. And as we do this, we do well. That's something that God honors and the Spirit will enable us to do. 
And as we are doing these things, we see God does a work in such a society. It's here that we take an interesting twist. Timothy, Timothy also gleaned from Paul's example because he, he knew what would follow. He understood what would follow for those who desire to live a life that is sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11, because he includes this in this list. I kind of cut it off last week because it demanded more time, but I'll actually start reading again in verse 10. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, and perseverance. Well, you can buy into all that. That's great, but then it gets a little difficult here. In verses 11 through 12, and persecutions, afflictions would happen to me at Antioch, Iconium, at Lystra. So he gets specific. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all, the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecutions. Paul understood this to the T. Paul, or at least let's look at it as Saul, that was Paul's name formally. Saul, the persecutor, has now become Paul, the persecuted. Paul understands this dynamic once again. He's in prison at this point. He understands what it means to be persecuted for his faith, and he's realizing that this isn't just unique to me. That everybody who has made the determination to live a life according to the Lord's direction, you're going to suffer opposition. Now we can go off in a study of spiritual warfare, and it really does or is included underneath that heading, but it's just the, the manner, the persecution, it, it flows from just our, our lives that we desire to live, and the persecution comes from, might be those in our own home might be those of our own family. It might be former friends or even current friends. It can come from so many different directions. It can even come, unfortunately, from the body of Christ. So what we see here is a contrast based upon who you are. It will either be the people suffering at the hands of the apostate or the apostle, the one sent with a message, who is suffering at the hands of the people, at the opposition, those who oppose Christ. We see this going on in society today, as even our own government is opposed to the church. Why would the government be opposed to the church? Think about it. Why would anybody be opposed to the church? We're not enslaving people. We're not ripping people off. We're not, and you can just write a long list. I mean, I'm talking about the church that is the true church, not the, the apostate church. We're, we're a benefit to society. We feed the poor. We, we, we clothe those who need clothing. We, we help those who are homeless. I'm talking the church in general. It, it, through the, the teachings of the Word of God, there's proper morals, morals that are, are recognized even by those of the world. What's so bad about the church? Well, there is that element of spiritual warfare that exists. And so there is going to be the opposition. As you make the determination to live a life that is sold out to God, there's going to be those, it may, won't make any sense apart from the Word of God, but they're going to come up against you. That's just the way it's going to be. Persecution. Next to the word persecution, you can also write the word harassment. Persecution, you know, we all think of stoning and all these things, and we're going to see it does involve that, but it's just harassment. It, it's that daily harassment. It's the harassment when you're on the job and you're trying to live according to Christ, but you see those who are constantly needling you, poking at you, tempting you, whatever it might be, because what are they trying to do? They're trying to drag you away. They're trying to test the genuineness of your faith, but also have the intention of dragging you away or at least down to where they are at. As you seek to live a godly life, expect a constant aggravation from those who are in the world, and again, unfortunately, even comes from those who are in the church. So in the midst of being obedient to what God had called him to do, let's look at what Paul considered to be an aggravation in his life. Again, verse 11, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. And so Paul is able to preach, or able to write, is what he's doing here, on things that occurred in his life. And so he's wanting to encourage Timothy to live a godly life, but then Paul, it hits him, as you're going to live a godly life, you're going to suffer harassment. You're going to suffer persecutions. And he understands that 
Timothy has seen this working in Paul's life. And so Paul wants to bring them back there because more than likely Paul was, although there will be people who suffer worse, Paul was an extreme example, but he doesn't want to, and and maybe you've heard this message before, come to Jesus Christ and live a tremendously blessed life. There are out there that preach that if you come to Christ, you'll never get sick again. You'll be rich and you'll be wealthy. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work. Matter of fact, it works the complete opposite of that. And Paul is wanting to remind Timothy, to remind us here today, that that is specifically and exactly how things work out. Turn over to the book of Acts, chapter 14. There was an event that occurred in the Apostle Paul's life, and it's something that Timothy was well aware of. Acts chapter 14, verse 19. It starts out and it says, the Jews. Now when it says the Jews, more often than not, it's speaking of the self-righteous. It's speaking of those who were of the Jewish religious system that were apart from God. They developed the sort of hybrid religion themselves and they were contrary to Christianity. Verse 19 of Acts chapter 14, Then the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Now, if you were going to stone somebody, if you were going to kill somebody by stoning, I would imagine, I've never stoned anybody myself, don't plan to, but if you were going to stone somebody, that would be a pretty brutal death. I mean, the face would swell, it would become disfigured, the rocks crashing and smashing, breaking bones, tearing skin and blood, and the whole thing. So if you were stoned to the degree that they thought you were dead, that would be a pretty thorough stoning, stoning, if you will. So they thought he was dead. It says in verse 20, However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must go through many tribulations and enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elder in every every church and prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through uh, uh, Placida, They came to Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. A couple of things we need to see that the Lord did through the persecuted life of a believer. First was the opportunity for ministry for those who cared for Paul. The verbiage behind verse 20, however, when the disciples gathered around him, it lends towards the people praying. The people praying for him. This man has been stoned. He has been drug out and left for dead. To deteriorate out there on the outskirts of the city. But the church didn't let go. The church went out and the church prayed. In the face of opposition, learn that lesson. Turn to prayer. Whenever opposition rears its ugly head, go before the Lord. Lift it up for yourself and for others. And so if it's a natural part of Christianity to suffer persecution, all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. Understand, then, it's going to be a natural part of the Christian life to pray, to pray. See, with opposition, when we looked at Colossians, we saw a little Christian concept. We're all, since there's persecution that's natural to us, we're going to be constantly struggling. But the beauty of that is there's strength in the struggle. There's strength in the struggles of your Christian life. As you see God overcoming, you're understanding the reality of what it means for God to be able to do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we ask or think. I like to keep active. I sit at a desk most of the day, so I like to get up and and walk, work out, and and things along those lines. I know you look at me and say, really? But nonetheless, I, I do try to do that. I was writing devotions and psalms for the first part of the year, so I kind of got away from all of that, was pretty busy, just started getting back to it with my wife. We've been going to the gym. We've been doing the treadmill and the bike, and then we go and and lift weights a little bit. And as I'm lifting weights, and not lifting very much weight either, I can feel it right there. I feel the soreness. 
we did chest, and then the next day, well, two days later, then we did shoulders, and I can feel it in my shoulders. And again, I'm not pumping iron, I'm just lifting a little bit of weight here. And so, it, get, it gets hard, and you get sore. So, <laughs> Pastor Mike, don't do that anymore. Well, no, that would be stupid. That would be silly. It, just to give up, just because it got a little hard? Matter of fact, the soreness, I kind of like it. It's kind of a funny thing. It, it kind of feels, because you know you're doing something then. And you understand that in that struggle, there's going to be strength. And it's the same thing in the Christian life. See, we are to exercise ourselves unto holiness. And we understand the more opposition, the stronger that I'm going to be. The more weight that you're able to move, the greater gains that you're going to be able to make. And how much more so in the Christian life. And I'm talking about every aspect of it. I'm talking relationships. I'm talking financial. That was the biggest hardship my wife and I, when we first got saved, experienced. Was hardship in financial areas that were so consuming. But the Lord delivered us from all. And matter of fact, as I look back, I see it was the hand of God that delivered us from our situation. He was teaching. He was training. He was wanting us to push against that opposition, that hardship, because he was wanting us to be strengthened. It's the same thing people who have health issues. You can feel so helpless, but don't give up. Continue to pray. Or maybe you have a loved one. Continue to pray. Continue to push against it in the Lord because there's strength in the struggle. And so, the Christian in the Christian life, we are not to suffer silently. We are to be vocal before the Lord in our afflictions and in the afflictions of others. And our afflictions, we are to be seeking and we are to be allowing others to pray. And the afflictions of others, we are to be active in those afflictions. See, we have at this church about 200, I don't remember, 250 people signed up on the email prayer request prayer chain. Is that about right, Teresa? Do you even remember? Yeah, somewhere around there. So instantly, I I tell people, you can have about 200 people, if you put your prayer requests on the prayer chain, uh, Mrs. Turin at gmail.com, you'll have about 200 people praying. Is that true, though? I mean, just because you have 200, 250 people on the prayer chain doesn't mean you necessarily have 200, 250 people praying. That's up to you. We've got to remain faithful in these things because we suffer opposition. Boy, do we need people to pray for us. But our brothers and sisters are suffering opposition, and we need to pray for them. Samuel said, far be it from me that I would sin and not pray. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 6-7, through we're told to be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And what is the result? It says here, and it will all go away. And you'll get millions of dollars, and you'll never be sick again. No. It says, and the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God that surpasses understanding. That's a peace or a contentment that you're able to have as you're going through hardship because there is hard... Well, there's hardship that comes just because we make foolish decisions without a doubt. There's hardships that come just because we sin. There's hardships that come about, though, because we desire to live a godly life. Lift it up in prayer. You'll find a contentment in the midst of that as you continue to push forward. Secondly, in this situation with Paul stoning, it was in the midst of persecution that the person persecuted saw God. Now, we're told in the book of Hebrews that Jesus, when he ascended to heaven, he sat at the right hand of the Father in that place of honor because of the work that he was able to accomplish. Now, the reason that he was seated is because the work for salvation had been completed. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to Jewish people, and so he's constantly comparing the Old Testament and how it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ because he wants to show that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. And so, well, Jesus is the great high priest. Well, to the Jewish mind, the great high priest or any priest would never be seated. Because we saw in the book of Exodus when we studied it and even through into Deuteronomy, when the tabernacle and the temple was being laid out and we saw all the furniture that was there, there wasn't any couches and there weren't any chairs. Why? Because the work never stopped. What was the work? The sacrifice for the covering of sins. The problem is, if you're connected with the covering of sins in that work, you're never going to get a day off. Why? 
because the people never take a day off. They're constantly sinning, so you have to constantly be sacrificing. And so the more they sin, the more you sacrifice. The more you sacrifice, the more they're going to think that they're going to be able to sin. But Jesus Christ came once. He paid the price once for all. It's the Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world. Now he's ascended to heaven, and now he's able to be seated. Why? Because the work is completed. The work is finished. Now there are two things that we see in the Scriptures that will cause the Lord to rise up from his rest. The first thing is going to be the rapture of the church when the Father tells the Son to go and to get his bride. The second thing is going to be, or is, the persecution of his saints. We see this in Acts chapter 7, verse 56. You have that very first martyr, Stephen. He's being stoned to death, and he did die. But he had a little bit of a vision. He says, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It's the only place that you see the Lord standing. Standing, he's standing to receive his persecuted saint unto himself. And so I need to see the value of that in the sight of the Lord. Where am I going with this? You can keep your thumb in Acts and turn over to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It's believed by most theologians this is where the Apostle Paul saw God. At that moment he died, he very well could have been dead, or at least this is where he received that vision. Can I say this absolutely? No, I can't, but it makes perfect sense. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse 1, it says, It is doubtless... Now, you need to see the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul struggles with what God has shown him, what God has done in him, and what God is doing through him. And we see how this can have a negative effect upon people. Some of the well-known pastors have kind of become a little full of themselves, and even lesser-known pastors could happen to anybody. Don't get me wrong, you don't even have to be a pastor. But we've seen it displayed when people get full of themselves and start thinking more of themselves than they should. And, well, that pride goes before a big old mess within the church. Again, in chapter 12, Paul says, look at his spirit here. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. He says, I know a man. Now he's speaking of himself as we'll see, but he's speaking third party because he wants you to consider this. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know. What he's saying is, I don't know if this was something real that I experienced or if it was a vision given to me from God. He says, God knows such a one was caught up into the third heaven. There's the first heaven, which is the skies. There's the second heaven, which would be like outer space. And then there's the third heaven, which would be the dwelling place of God. Again, mostly we have to realize that Paul has a Jewish mind, and that's what the Jews would consider. Verse 3, And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is, well, which is, is it not lawful for a man to utter? And so I wonder what those words are. And you can look in the Bible, and I've heard people make guesses and the whole thing, but the guy who heard them didn't know, and so can't tell you what they were, but this is just this amazing experience that Paul had. It was other than him. It was other than us. Verse 5, Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except for my infirmities. So he, he's speaking of what God had, had done in him, and how he was, Paul was always keenly aware of how God was using him, but using him as an example. He used his old life as an example of what he formerly was, and how he persecuted the church, but also everything that God was doing, he was using him as an example and Paul never lost focus of that. It kept Paul humble and kept him, well, kept a proper perspective of himself. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool. Because he knows if he starts becoming prideful, he'll have a great fall. For I will speak the truth, but I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. Verse 7. Now, here's how God deals in the life of his people. This is part of the reason why those who desire to live godly are going to suffer persecution. 
Verse 7, and least I should be exalted above measure, above what, what is right in the sight of God, by the abundance of revelations, because God has showed him so much, we would look at him and think he's somebody special. Look how much of the Bible he's written. He says, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, least I be exalted above measure. Now, with Job, we saw that there were the days that the angels presented him to God, themselves to God, and the devil did that, and God had a hedge around Job. And God pulled back a little bit of that hedge for a time of trials and testings in Job's life, and the devil took the opportunity. Well, apparently, it was the same thing with Paul. God had his protection upon him, but there was the necessity to buffet him. Now, this is a spiritual attack, there's no doubt about it, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Now, he says that he had this thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that thorn in the flesh was. It's debated. Was this a physical infirmity? It seems like Paul had an issue with his eyes, and so maybe that was something frustrating to him. But I don't know how much this would humble himself and and see him connected to his necessity to God. There's others, and it's the way that I kind of lean towards, in that this was some sort of sin issue, some sort of issue in his life. Now, wasn't this huge sin that disqualified him? Obviously not. Maybe it was just the knowledge of his sinful conditions. Maybe it was desires of his heart. Again, Romans chapter 7, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I do want, you know, and he's going through that, that great dilemma. But nonetheless, he had this thorn in the flesh. Now, a better translation would be a stake, a wooden stake. And you can look it up in a lexicon. That would have been a better translation that maybe kind of made the picture a little richer. Because the Apostle Paul, he was a tent maker. He understood the necessity of keeping a tent hammered down so when the opposition came, when the winds came, or whatever it might be, that tent wouldn't go sailing off. And it's what he's talking about here This was given to me as that wooden stake so I I wouldn't get full of myself, but I would be hammered to the ground. And that's the Lord's point here. This isn't heaven. Don't expect it to be heaven. This is never going to be heaven. Matter of fact, when heaven comes down, it's going to be at a new new heaven and a new earth. This place is going to burn. And so we ought not to expect it to be heaven. We're going to suffer persecution. We're going to suffer sickness. We're going to suffer financial difficulty. You're going to suffer anything that's going to tear the heart out of your chest. Because again, as I've said so many times before, you could look at somebody else's suffering and think, what's the big deal? Well, God's got a deal for you. It may not be the deal that he has for them, but he will have a big deal for you because all who desire to live godly are going to suffer persecution. And we see the reason, at least I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh or a tent snake stake was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, least I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, this is God's answer. Now he's praying in the midst of whatever this hardship is. And God answers him, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Or there is strength in the struggle. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, reproaches, and needs, in persecutions, and distresses, for Christ's sake, so you need to draw a line here, not for the sake of the flesh, but for Christ's sake, for desiring to live a godly life, for when I am weak, then I am strong. It's then that I realize the strength of God in my life as he has brought me to a place of weakness. All who desire to live in the flesh You're going to suffer persecution if you're a Christian, but that's going to be persecution from God. And when I say persecution, probably a better term would be conviction. But all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, they're going to suffer persecution. But again, it's for the purpose of keeping you placed where you need to be so that you would grow in the power of God and not in the power of yourself. Right now, your kids are learning about dinosaurs, the dinosaurs that we see in the, uh, the book of Job, chapters 40 and 41. Job had been pretty arrogant. He'd been telling God what for. 
Don't we do that, give instruction to God? Have you ever given instruction to God? Maybe in your prayers, God, this needs to happen and that needs to happen, and God just laughs. He just laughs, not literally, but obviously. God's got a plan. He's going to see that plan worked out. And it was up to Job to finally get on the same page as God. And God told him, gird yourself up and stand like a man. Where were you at creation? And he's going through all of these things, and he gets to these big animals, whatever you think that they may be, and says, how can you, can you harness, even harness these animals? And the idea is Job is starting to understand the sovereignty of God in his life. The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is all according to God's plan. And what do I want to be used in? How do I want to be used? According to however it is that God wants to use me. If we are of that mindset, we'll do well in the midst of the trials that we face. Thirdly, back to Acts, if you kept your finger there, in chapter 14, it was in the midst of persecution that others saw God in Paul. Paul saw God, but it was in the midst of persecution that others saw God. Think about it. Why would two godly women, and we know their names, Lois and Eunice, give of their grandson and their son, that would be Timothy, to this man whom, well, they don't really know. He's just kind of blown in and out of town a couple of times. Why would they do that? Because they saw God in this man. Where and how? Again, look at chapter 14 in Acts, verse 19. Then the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, came where? Lystra, that's the city that he got stoned at. And having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around, now disciples were disciples of that city, learners of the Lord Jesus Christ in that city, Christians, part of the church in that city, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. Now turn over to Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. Now that was on Paul's first missionary journey that he was stoned and came back. This is the second missionary journey. This is right out of the gates. It says, then he came, Paul, came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them to decrees to which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. And this is the key verse for this whole thing, back in 14 and 15 and back in 2 Timothy. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Paul was stoned, but the result was the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in numbers daily. Lois and Eunice either heard of or maybe even seen Paul be stoned. Maybe they were even part of the people who were praying. And because of that, because of these godly women and they saw God in Paul, the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in numbers daily. And because Timothy saw God in the Apostle Paul and how this man not only was stoned, but what did he do? This is insane. I don't, I don't know if I, I'm able to do this. He's stoned. They pray for him. And the whole thing, it says in verse 20, however, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. He went back up and he went back in. Because that's what God had called him to do. So that's what he did. Even when he left the area, he came back to those cities. On his second missionary journey, he went back to those cities. If you came to Calvary Chapel, Ontario, and today was the day we were having a stoning and we elected you to be stoned. Now, we don't stone people to death, but maybe we just hurt you real bad. And we drug you out and threw you in the parking lot. Would you come back in? I probably wouldn't come back in. You decided to have a change of pastor, so let's stone the old one. I don't know if I'd be strong enough spiritually to come back in. Paul came back. I mean, think about that. When Paul was being stoned, he was being stoned. And I don't know what it feels like to be stoned, but it has to hurt a whole bunch. He went through that pain. That pain was real to him. All those who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. The idea here is it's going to hurt. Paul was hurt. And so when you're stoned and you're drug out of the, bill, the, the city and you come back in, you're thinking, am I going to be stoned again? Blessed be the will of God. 
Paul just understood, I'm going to not give up. I'm going to push on. Now, Timothy has an understanding of Timothy could have physically been there or at least heard firsthand of what God has done in this man's life. And he saw God and he was inspired by what God was doing in that man's life. Now look what Paul says in verse 14. Go ahead and turn back to 2 Timothy. Paul tells him, but you. Now we saw in verse 10, but you. Then we saw in verse 13, but evil men, but evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you, you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Paul's saying, take my example. Man, if you're going to follow through in the example of Paul, that's a pretty big example. This guy got stoned and went back. I don't know if I could do that. Timothy would be saying, I just say that because I know I would be saying that. But Paul's saying, this is a natural part of the Christian life. Now, here at Calvary Chapel, Ontario, chances are pretty good you're not going to get stoned for your faith. Chances are you're not going to get physically injured in this country for your faith. Just think of it. You go up to heaven. There's the rapture. And so you get up to heaven. They're having a pre-marriage supper of the Lamb party kind of get-together there where all of the saints are there and everybody's happy to see you and there's Isaiah and you're talking to Isaiah and he's talking about how he was sawn in half. There's the Apostle Peter and he's talking about how he was crucified upside down for the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul is telling how he lost his head for the Lord and all of these saints and they said, well, what happened to you? They talked really mean about me. They said some pretty nasty things about me. I mean, really? Really? What else are they going to do? They may laugh at you. They may talk bad about you. They may not hang out with you anymore. But in actuality, in our society, that's about the worst that's going to happen. And then the church is always here. Well, you can come into the church and we'll talk bad about you in here. No, you can come to the church and you'd be strengthened up. Now you're being strengthened in the Lord. And so where do you want your fellowship to be anyway? Do you want it to be with the world or do you want it to be with the people of the Lord? And so we're to have our fellowship with the Lord, not forsaking the gathering together of the brethren for the purpose of going out into the world. And you're going to suffer persecution if you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. But what are they going to do to you? Paul was, he was willing to get stoned. You know what I mean by that, right? Okay. He was willing to have rocks thrown at him. But are we willing to suffer whatever we suffer in, in this society? What happens... And it very well could when some group like ISIS kind of takes over around here. Then are you going to be able to step up and, and live for the Lord Jesus Christ? We see these things are coming. We see them in our society, but we also read to the end of the Bible and they're going to happen. And so am I willing to do that? Am I willing to do that based upon what Jesus Christ has done for me? Am I willing to do that for the gospel that people would get saved? We went to my daughter's house yesterday out in Yucca Valley. We had picked up my other daughter, Jamie. She was living in New York. Her husband's being transferred. She came out. And my granddaughter, Malachi, we took him down to Yucca Valley. Her twin sister, Kelly, lives there. And we were going to surprise her. And, and we did. And we go in. And Kelly's, ah! You know, and they're, so they're all yelling and screaming and falling over everybody. And I was taking the video. And all of a sudden, I kind of feel something. And I... I look down, and there's my grandson, Noah, and he's got his arms wrapped around me and just kind of holding on to me. And it just kind of spoke to me when I saw that. You know, he, he didn't even say anything. You know, all of a sudden, it's just boom, he's, he's just there. You know, and I just see the degree to which he looks up to me. And I see the responsibility that I have in that, to live godly in Christ Jesus. That I wouldn't do damage to his faith by living contrary to Christ but I would live for the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because I believe these things. And if I believe these things into my life, I had better be believing them into his life. And what I mean by that, willing to live a life in Christ Jesus for the benefit of his spiritual life. Because just as surely as I desire to live godly in Christ Jesus and am going to suffer persecution that is going to be the proof of my salvation, it's going to be the same thing for him 
and the generations to come. And unfortunately, with past generations, we've had a very bad example, but as far as us, but you, you need to continue on. Don't worry about the people who are falling apart and falling down and everything else, but you, you need to continue on. But you must continue on in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Now, the Apostle Paul taking into account here in 2 Timothy, taking into account 2 Corinthians, who has Timothy learned these things from? It wasn't really the Apostle Paul, but it was God in the Apostle Paul. And so what do we have? We have the darkness of our life. We have the testimony of the day of our salvation and the reality of what Christ continues to do in our lives for the purpose of solidifying that witness in the, for Jesus Christ and for the purpose of holiness in the future. God has given you this. You need to embrace it, but more importantly, you need to do it. We as the church have to stand up in these dark days. We have to stand up and be counted for the glory of God. Go ahead and I'll close. Go ahead and turn over to Joshua. Joshua chapter 14. Or I'll at least get ready to close. No, just two more minutes. Joshua chapter 14. Caleb. You've heard a lot about Caleb, or at least you've heard of Caleb a lot. But actually, Caleb got very little ink in the Bible. He was with Joshua when they went in to spy out the promised land, and you had the other ten guys who went with them, and they gave a bad report. Joshua and Caleb were men of faith, and they gave that report that glorified God, and so God allowed them to not perish in the wilderness, but 38 years later to be there and to enter into the promised land. Israel has entered into the promised land. They're expelling those who are of the land. And now it comes time to give Caleb his allotment of land. Looking at um, verse 6. Now look at verse 7. Caleb says, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land And I brought back word to him as was in my heart, what I truly believed. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, but I was wholly following the Lord my God. See, he understood the concept, both he and Joshua, all who desire to live godly are going to suffer persecution. There's going to be opposition that goes into the land. But the thing about it is, we're more than conquerors. God goes before us in those things, and ultimately we're able to gain victory. Those people who do not want to suffer persecution, they're not going to continue on. They're going to pull back. Verse 9, So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land where your foot has trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now behold, the Lord has kept... Now this is Caleb speaking in verse 10. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive, as he said, these 45 years, ever since the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now, here I am this day, 85 years old. So he was 40 when he went to spy out the land. They came into the promised land 48 years, really 30 years later. And now it's after that as they've been in there attacking the enemy and expelling the people. And now here's Caleb, he's 85 years old. In verse 11 he says, As yet, I am as strong this day as on the day that Moses sent me, just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, both for going out and for coming in. (laughs) No, it's not. I'm 58, and I think I'm as strong as I was when I was 20, and I know I'm not. Uh, Every man kind of feels that way. Talk to any 85-year-old man. I could take you all on, you know, kind of a thing. But see, that's where we miss the boat, when we start thinking of physical strength. Where was Caleb's strength? His strength was in his faith in the Lord. And so in essence, what he's telling us is, he's continued on. What has he continued on in? He's continued on in his faith in the Lord. So in actuality, yeah, he is just as strong as he was before. Verse 12, now therefore, so Joshua is telling his favored friend, what do you want? 
anything. I'll give you the, you, you get the pick of the litter here, wherever it is that you want to make your home. Now, where does this man who realizes the strength of God, what is it that he chooses? Verse 12, now therefore, based upon the strength that I have, give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day, for you heard in that day how the Anakim were there, and that the cities were great and fortified, it may be that the Lord will be with me, that I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. Give me the mountains and the giants. I want to climb mountains, and I want to kill giants. The thing about Caleb is, he always wanted to climb mountains and kill giants. And even as an 85-year-old man who was just as strong in the faith, and probably even stronger, he still wants to climb mountains and kill giants. There were others when they were confronted by the people of the land, even though they had the great promises of God, they stopped and they did not move forward. But you got this old man. I'm willing to climb mountains and kill giants based upon what God has done, what God has said, and who God is in my life. And so we'll just close with this last question. What are you willing to do? Father, I just pray that we would truly contemplate that question. Based upon who you are, Lord, what are we willing to do? Everybody here who desires to live godly is going to suffer persecution. It's a natural part of the Christian life. And so, Father, I pray, that being the case, that we would be a people who push forward. And so, Father, I pray that you would strengthen us through the power of your might to overcome our flesh, to overcome our fear, that, Father, we would hold on to faith fastly and that we would move forward. And so, Father, I pray that we would be counted as a people who continue on. There's every reason in the world to pull back. But, Father, I pray, especially as days like we live in today, that your church would continue on. And so, Father, I pray for everybody represented here today in the degree to which you have called them, in the capacity which you enable them, in the area which you have placed them. I pray, Father, that they would continue on. I pray the same thing for myself, that we would not just have this be a Sunday thing, but, Father, this would be an everyday thing. And so, Father, you're glorified through humble people who push through, who push through when the world tries to hold back, who, who, who suffer through spiritual hardship without a doubt, but also understand that our God is able, and our God is able to do so much, even more than we even think. And so, Father, as we serve a God who is able to do that, I pray, Father, that before you, that we would be found faithful. Again, Paul, he was in a dungeon. He was in a jail, but he continued on. He continued to push on. How much more so, Father, especially in this country with the great freedoms that we still have, should we be a people, Lord, who continue on? Enable us in that. Fill us with your spirit. And Father, I pray that we would always have that mindset to glorify you in all things, in every area we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. We all stand, please? We'll have a couple up here for prayer after service. We're going to have a meeting in the uh, high school room for uh, those who are involved in vacation Bible school, uh, just kind of a um, debriefing, if you will, just to get some ideas together and whatnot. Uh, tonight we'll be back in Isaiah, and uh, also the worship team will be having their worship meeting here, what time, Paul? 12.30 here in, in this room as well. And again, tonight we'll be back in the